morning, ladies and gentlemen. On today's podcast, we've got physiotherapist Lindsay Bull in the studio to discuss some topics surrounding his experience with elite sporting teams and athletes and some of the common injuries he's seen in his experience. Lindsay graduated from UQ in 2006, had a fantastic grounding for two years at All Sports Physiotherapy before moving over to the UK. He was successful in getting a job in football at Bristol City FC before commencing work at Nottinghamshire County Cricket, thoroughly enjoying both experiences and gained excellent experience across very different environments. He wrapped up his time in the UK with the brilliant experience of working in the Sports Medicine Centre in the Athletes' Village at the London 2012 Olympic Games. Lindsay moved back to Queensland and started working with the Gold Coast Suns Football Club whilst juggling private practice commitments and undertaking his Masters in Sports Physiotherapy through La Trobe University. Lindsay has since worked as the rehabilitation physiotherapist, then the head physiotherapist at the Gold Coast Suns, and looking forward to moving into season number nine. As well as all of this, apparently he's a huge cricket fan, as in on the TV, the radio, podcasts, and even the David Boone bobblehead dolls in his car. Kerry also mentioned that he sleeps in his cricket whites as well. (laughs) Thanks for joining us today, Lindsay. No worries, Andrew. Thanks for having me. So we're going to talk a little bit today about ACL injuries in in particular, that patient population that you see, which is the elite sporting athletes. But would you mind just delving into some of the anatomy about the the ACL? Yeah, sure. So I guess in the knee, there's really four critical ligaments that stabilize the knee. There's the ACL, which stops the translation of the shin forwards and also stops some rotation as well. So if you didn't have that, your shin would just keep sliding forwards as you as you plant your leg. Um, there's the posterior cruciate ligament, which stops your, your shin translating backwards. There's your medial collateral ligament, which will stop your knee um, sort of, I guess, your shin coming outwards and, and stressing the inside of your knee. And then one on the lateral side as well could be lateral collateral ligament, which, which stops it going the other way. So the ACL is probably one of the more well-known ones, I think, because when they get injured, the it's a bit more catastrophic than the others in terms of a long time out and, you know, it might be someone's favourite player that's really important to their team that they support and therefore an ACL is, is you know, the worst thing in the world. But it it's a very, very important ligament to stop that excess translation. And if you have a lot of that excess translation or shear force going through that joint at a regular occurrence, you're really going to work and work through your, your cartilage and your meniscus pretty quickly and a lot more quickly than the general aging process would, would work through those areas. And the difficulty with that is that you're going to accelerate the onset of, of osteoarthritis, which mm-hmm. essentially you're going to get once you injure an ACL, whether you're reconstructed or not. It's just when that kicks in and how significantly that restricts your function and and causes you pain um so that's why that's why the anatomy of it is is really interesting and and really important i guess so Lindsay, with regards to an acl reconstruction what are some of the common ways that a surgeon uh, might reconstruct the knee so I guess traditionally you, you, there's two main areas that they'll take or harvest a graft from if it's coming from you, and that's the most common thing that happens. So it'll either be one of the medial hamstring tendons, so one of the hamstring tendons on the inside of your thigh, or your patella tendon, so the actual tendon that connects your kneecap down to your shin. Mm-hmm. They're the two most common. Now, one of the one of the other graft sites, which is sort of gaining a little bit of popularity in Australia and is, is quite prevalent in Europe and, and the States, is a quadriceps tendon graft, so it actually just from above the kneecap. 
Um, and uh, and they're using that a lot in skiers over in over in Europe and the states with with some promising results as well. I've seen one of those um, and was promised that a a six week knee would look like it should be at 12 weeks so you know twice as fast and we probably found that at 12 weeks it looked like it was at about six so oh, really? but yeah. you know what at, at uh at probably the five month mark it was it was at a really good stage and, yeah. the, and the athlete had a really good result at the, at the 12 month return to play mark so what the what the surgeon will do is it'll har- they'll harvest the, the graft site from the appropriate location and then from there they'll they'll leave it within the body while they tidy up where they're going to put it and drill their tunnels and, and in the in the knee for the new ligament and then they use that area as a new ligament and like to have a lot of scarring form around that to to make sure that ligament becomes, I guess, or the tendon becomes a ligament moving forwards. Okay. So Lindsay, as an extremely experienced sports physio, how common are ACL injuries? Well, they, they're relatively common and it's difficult to probably put a number on it in the general population, but um, but in, in AFL in particular, we, we budget on having one ACL injury per year and that's that's about average. So some years you might not have one and some years you might have a couple and it's a bad year, but uh, but generally across the competition, it's it's one per year. And in the, in the AFLW, in the women's competition, which is a relatively new competition, three or four years old, they're having one or two per club per season. That's with a smaller uh, group, smaller list size and a, yeah. and a smaller season as well. So it's been quite prevalent in that space mm-hmm. uh, to start with in that competition and, and hopefully that, that levels out and lessens out a little bit as that as that goes forward. But um, but in the general population, unfortunately, the, the instance is actually increasing over the past 15 years or so. Oh, so wow. Yeah. So whether that's down to improved diagnoses or um, better management or, you know, better um, assessment procedures or not, uh, not too sure, but but the, the incidence is rising, yeah. Okay. Well, that's interesting. And with regards to the, the women's AFL, is is it be, is there any factors? Is it because it's just a new competition um, uh, or are there certain things that make it um, more prevalent for the, the women? Yeah, it's a good question. I, th- I think at the moment everyone's trying to get to the bottom, <laughs> bottom of that question. Uh, my thoughts on it would be, you, you know, over a few folds. So the, the the highest rate in females is between 19 and 24-year-olds where a lot of that population sits. Um, the sport, I guess, is relatively new at the elite level and probably doesn't have – like a lot of the elite players haven't played since they were six or seven or eight like the, like the boys have. Oh, right. So they've probably come in from other sports. So there's a lot of netballers or soccer players or good athletes that have come into the sport and it's a professional sport. So they've, they've joined and they've done so quite well and made a, making a living or a part-time living out of it, but probably don't have the movement competencies and the, and the, and the skills as a background from a young age. Yeah. So they're trying to sort of, I guess, superimpose these, these really difficult movement strategies mm. on a different base that, that they just don't have like the boys. So I think that's a big factor. Plus females have a higher risk of ACL injury. They've yeah. got a, a slightly increased, um, level of ligament laxity as well. So um, so those might be some factors that contribute as well. And I think that, you know, over the next hopefully five years, we can get that those numbers right down with, with some really good preventative strategies. And then you'll also see the, the female athletes coming through have been playing it from a younger age because yeah. it, it's definitely a booming sport in, in adolescent girls yeah. and, and younger girls as well. So It's been awesome watching it on the telly. Yeah. And I guess with your experience in the AFL and um, surrounding ACL injuries, which we're, we're focusing on today in this this podcast episode, um, is there anything that you guys uh, with the Gold Coast Suns team for the men will be implementing from that rehab point of view into the women's side? 
Yeah, definitely. So the the female program that started has, has tried to mirror the the processes that we use in the in the men's program. Um, there's a couple of different strategies that we've embraced from uh, female soccer over in Europe and America. There's quite a decent level of information and, and research in that in that area um, that we've translated and tried to um, mould with our our men's philosophy for the senior team as well. Um, at this stage, the AFLW is not as well resourced as the AFL as well, so it's really onerous on on the staff and the practitioners. So right. a lot of a lot of it's really education based to the players and the athletes and then it's you know there, there's some good levels of support to implement that, those programs but it's it's probably uh that'll grow as as i guess the competition grows as well yeah, yeah. and so the the competition needs a bit more funding for those <laughs> programs to, to grow uh yeah i guess so but it's also growing from scratch as well. So yeah, okay. any time that it sort of comes in each year, I guess the, the competition will get a bit bigger. The sponsorship might get a little bit bigger mm. as well and and then the appropriate um, workforce, I guess, will, will follow that. Uh, I mean, post-COVID, the whole sporting industry has been hit pretty significantly. Yeah. So um, I'm not sure where that will sit moving forward because we've had big cuts to our program as, as well as have people across the industry. So um, we've just got to get really creative and, and, and better at, providing resources for athletes to use away from from work yeah. and, and athletes to use in their own time as well. But but with the females, it's hard because they're not full-time. They've got a, a short window of their season and, and most of the time they're working through the day and training at night as well. So it makes it a bit more difficult yeah. and it makes uh, our guys seem very, very uh, spoilt and very looked after by the, by the professionalism that they, that they get to show, yeah. And as a, um, a physio for the Suns, are you are you there with them every single day, or are you still juggling that private practice commitment? No, I I, tr- I tried to do it up until probably three years ago because mm. I really enjoyed going into private practice a couple of nights a week, and it did only go down to a couple of nights a week. And then uh, the travel commitment and the work responsibility yeah. with the with the head physio role uh, increased significantly, and and we got two little boys at home, so uh, missing missing bedtime for those yeah. wasn't wasn't much fun uh, to go and work a few hours in the clinic. So I, I'd like to get that balance back one day but at the moment no, no. I, I'm I'm purely with the Suns yeah yeah yep. sounds like you've got a lot of commitments <laughs> yeah. and so if we're focusing on ACLs it, with regards to an ACL reconstruction because I'm in private practice and and that is something that commonly comes up that we might uh, get the question from a patient who's ruptured their ACL do I have surgery um, or do I not have surgery? What what sorts of advice um, would you be giving someone? That's a that's a good question, and, and it's a it's a very um, pertinent question for probably over the last four or five years, I guess, with some good research coming out where people are actually asking the question: Can I manage this without surgery? Um, I'll probably give both balances a side of the story on both, and then my recommendation after that. But. Generally speaking, historically, surgery has been the way to go in terms of rehabilitation. So so there's a significant force that goes through the ACL, obviously, to keep your knee nice and stable in both a, a rotation moment and also a shifting backwards and forwards type mm-hmm. movement as well. So it's, it's a critical component of, of knee health and knee stability. So the traditional thinking has been, right, let's reconstruct that, whether it's some tissue from your body, somebody else's body, or a synthetic graft, yeah. and then try and get everything back around the knee as normal as possible and move forward. Now, probably more than most, I guess, medical procedures, it's it's not the it's not the silver bullet. Definitely there's, a, there's quite a decent failure rate and recurrence rate with ACL injuries. Um, even in the AFL, it's, it's one in 10 um, oh, wow. have a recurrence, whether it's on that side or the other side. And yeah. so in the general population, I think it's 13% on either side. So one in four, um, so 
adding up to 26%, yeah. one in four, you know, have a recurrence at some point. Um, so there was some, so that's the surgery side, I guess. And then the, the conservative side is, oh, what, what will happen if we brace the knee or we, we go through a, a procedure where we don't have to have surgery? And then what are the outcomes from that? And there was a really, really nice bit of research a few years ago um, that did a, a two-year follow-up on a lot of patients and, and 50% of those actually coped quite well without an ACL. And now okay. what is coping quite well? That's, a, that's probably the pertinent question and, and that's a self-related or self-reported um, outcome right. as to success. Yeah. Um, and this definitely wasn't in elite athletes either. So there are some people that go quite well with that, but in my opinion it really, really depends on what your aims are and what you want to get back to. My advice will, at this stage in my career, will always be to have surgery. Yeah. Uh, with our guys, it's a it's a no brainer to have surgery, um, because your recurrence rate is a lot less, and there's just so much uncertainty if you do decide not to have surgery. There's mm-hmm. some uns- there's some uncertainty as to whether you'll get any actual healing of that of that area, or whether your knee will be you know functional and, and stable moving forwards. And then thinking about the long term health of the knee as well, you're likely to probably more likely theoretically to have some, I guess, un, um, unwelcome sequelae, unwelcome consequences from not reconstructing that area in, in terms of other areas of damage within the knee and the meniscus or your cartilage or, or maybe making you a lot more prone to arthritis earlier on. Right. Earlier on in your, in your rehabilitation or earlier, earlier on in, in, your, um, in your return to function. So the critical question is what do you want to get back to? Okay. For me. Yeah. And if anyone wants to get back to a running or pivoting sport, I would say have a reconstruction. Yeah. And, you know, with most people's employment or, or if most people's employment is quite physically demanding as well, I definitely recommend right. um, having a reconstruction. I, I, that's my bias. That's, yeah. that's what I've seen and that's what I see in my, in my practice over the last uh, 10 to 15 years. But I, I haven't managed too many that we haven't got down the surgical route. So I can't really provide a real good balance on that. But my advice would be to have surgery. Okay. And I guess for particularly the, the group that you deal with being the elite sporting population, but if, um, if you had a patient in front of you who was a 60-year-old male who um, wanted to play maybe a little bit of social tennis um, and go for walks, what would you recommend in that situation? Yeah, good, good question. Tennis, I'd probably, I'd probably have a real good discussion with them yeah. about and, and see sort of what level and what level of function they'd want to get back to or be happy to because there's obviously, as you know, there's some people who can go and play tennis with friends and there's some people who just, you know, especially blokes that like to take it a bit further <laughs> yeah. and, and think they're Pat Cash reincarnated. So <laughs> I, think, um, I think it really depends on what that level yep. looks like. If, if it was purely just going for some walks, um, with the dog or, or the family or things like that on a nice stable surface, then then maybe it's a it's a really good one to to not undergo that because it you know the the downside of of having surgery is you're probably going to have a longer early acute phase, a longer early layoff phase yeah. than if you don't. Yeah. So you probably have the acute injury phase, but then you have got the acute post operative phase as yeah. well. So they're difficult for people, especially as they're getting on and if they're a bit sedentary as well. Like if the if the person's quite fit, they could probably cope with that okay. Mm. Some 60-year-olds are really fit now and some probably aren't. So mm. if they're not really fit and, and that layer keeps sort of getting chipped away, then then maybe it's it's one not to have surgery. Yeah. But it, it really depends on what your aim is to get back to and, and what your physical factors are beforehand. And I think probably the most critical component, Andrew, is to make a really well-informed decision. So if you're weighing up, 
one or the other, make sure you get really good advice. Don't just Dr. Google it. Yeah. Make sure you find a physio or a strength coach, a doctor that you really trust and, and or a few of them and get their opinions as to how this might progress forwards and see what people have have achieved both with surgery and without surgery. Okay. Yep. That, that's the most critical part. Make a really well-informed decision with the people that you trust and then yep. go and execute your plan after that. Yeah. And I think, mate, like you've hit the nail on the head in that patients need to be informed about the decisions that they're making and that that might take speaking to a couple of physios, a couple of GPs, um, exercise physiologists or even talking to a surgeon and, and discussing the long-term and, and short-term implications and, and outcomes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I guess we had a really interesting case um, only recently where we were considering non-surgical management. It was, a, it was an older athlete. Um, he'd just come back from an ACL injury on the other knee mm-hmm. and then he, uh, sorry, he had an ACL injury on that knee and then he had a, uh, his other knee had a partial ACL tear. So we, you know, we spent a couple of weeks getting really diligent opinions and, and researching everything we could and weighing up, is this something we try to manage without surgery? Um, in the end, we decided to, because as good as MRIs are, they're not as good as actually going in and having a look. So yeah. we, the surgeon we worked really closely with went in and actually had a look arthroscopically at the ligament and we made a decision there and then that wow. it probably wasn't patent enough to heal back up and and rehabilitate comfortably so we we reconstructed it at the time um but oh, we so were the surgeon up. went in and yeah so he was going to go in and just have a look and then we make our decision yeah. and when we went in there and put him under anesthetic there was the knee was very unstable and it was probably less um fibers still intact than what the mri indicated oh, right okay so it was probably more likely to fail we'll never know because yeah. we didn't go down that yeah. route and with the stage of the career and the stage of season we we're at we had to weigh up all those factors and and then talk to the obviously the player before he went under anaesthetic and say, the, "This is our this is our plan," and come to that all together with the surgeon and and then that was the case and we reconstructed it and so unfortunately that'll be that'll be another another year out of, of football. Do you think he'll make it back? Yeah, yeah, yeah I do. Yeah, okay. yeah. So he, he's it's difficult for him because he's coming off back to back ACLs, one on each side. Um, but I do. Yeah, he's very driven and diligent with with the work that he does. So I'm yeah. sure he's got a good team behind I, him. I hope so. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. And are there any factors um, that you see, particularly in that elite group, that can help to speed up recovery from, we'll focus on, um, given that you're swaying a little bit more towards the reconstructing the ACL to that group? Yeah, there's, there's, some, there's some really strong indicators as to whether you're going to have a, a really successful rehab or, or one that has lots of bumps. No, they all have lots of bumps. They all, they all sort of go up and down a little bit. But I think we've, we've touched on it briefly. Is you, one of the better things that I've seen is when you've got a good group together that's supporting the athlete or the, or the patient that's, that's had an injury, you've got a really good group around them that are all striving for the same goal. So that would be the biggest one for me, get everyone on the same page, get a really good plan, a really well-documented plan with, with specific phases yep. and clear markers as to, all right, from the acute phase, this is what you need to achieve before we move to the strength phase. And the strength phase, this is what you need to achieve before we move to the running phase. Now, I guess I'll, I'll probably talk about the flip side as well. The, the bad ones that I've seen are, have been more along the, I guess, a bit more of an old school way of thinking of, okay, at six weeks you do this, at 12 weeks you mm-hmm. do this, at 20 weeks you do this, and at six months you do this. Yeah. Because as you know, Andrew, like, there's some guys at six weeks who look like they should only be two weeks. Yeah, um, yeah. they look in you know pretty pretty bad. Um, 
and then there's some guys at six weeks that look like they could be three or four months they're going that good so I think with both of those you need to really be adaptable with your planning and that's a sign of a really good rehabilitation so yeah. if someone is looking like they're only two weeks then respect that next little bit and take till they're 10 weeks because at the 12 month mark when they're returning to sport it's all going to be come out in the wash yeah. like you might go yeah. really slow at the start and come home with a wet sail or you might be absolutely flying through hit a speed bump and then still push past that quite well so yeah. Um, I think the the biggest indicator is to move on to the next phase when you are ready and when you've ticked off the markers. Yep. There's absolutely no joy in taking shortcuts and that for me is a really strong indicator of, of you're, you're going to have a poor outcome if, you, if you've still got a stiff, swollen knee and you're trying to, to hop upstairs or <laughs> different things like that just because you're at a certain landmark post-operatively. Okay. So, And, Lindsay, is there anything um, dietary-wise or uh, that, that you can consume to help with the recovery uh, after an ACL reconstruction? Good question. Um, I'm really fortunate to work in a place where I've got a dietitian to handle all those sort of things too. But, but I, And it probably depends on, um, on what your demographic is yep. in terms of your person recovering from an ACL injury and also what they want to get back to. So for an elite level athlete, um, early on when psychologically it's quite difficult watching their teammates play and them not play, we give them a little bit of rope dietary-wise to, you know, stay nice and uh, or not to be too strict on their diet yeah. early on when it doesn't really affect them significantly badly but to keep them in decent spirits. And then as we start to as we start to progress through, we, we, we tighten that up uh, a lot more. So... Obviously, a nice balanced diet and a good protein intake as you're as you're trying to build muscle is is really really critical. But um, but having a having a really good dietitian on board to help with that would be would be the main part. I, I wouldn't say there's any real silver bullet of to you know ingesting this or taking that yeah, will, okay. will accelerate any anything for you. Um, you know, there'll be people who talk about turmeric's effect on inflammation and those sort of things. That's not my expertise. But yeah. um, I think I think just having a really good understanding as to the whole person and, and you know, there's the psychological mm. well-being as well as their physical state w- would determine where you sort of, how much you tighten up their diet or how yeah. much you leave, leave a little bit of slack there. Yeah. And, and, well, I know, I know in your group or population that you'd see, everyone would see the dietitian. Yep. Yeah. And in a, a general population, um, if they didn't have those elite sporting demands like your guys do, would you be including a dietitian in that uh, recovery process? I, th- I think so. I, I mean, it, once again, it depends on how serious they're going to be in getting back to a, a really, really significant level mm-hmm. of, of sport. If, you, if you've got a, a 16-year-old who's got high hopes of, of making a rugby league career and an Aussie rules career or a cricket career, whatever it might be, then, yeah, I'd get, I'd get them involved and, and get them training those really good habits early on because it could yep. definitely help. But if we go back to your 60-year-old um, mad tennis player who who decides to have surgery, yep. then, you know what, if he has a few beers every couple of nights and, and is a little bit overweight, then, you know, does it really matter too much? Yeah. <laughs> you you want to have a decent body mass index so you can stay fit and healthy generally yes. and so you're not putting more strain on, on your lower limb as you're putting it through demands of tennis. But... Yeah, I, I think that it, it's probably a real horses for courses yeah. type, type, type answer, yeah. I, well, I think you answered that very well. <laughs> Danced around? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, so there's, there's a lot of information out there regarding ACL recoveries and sort of the best exercises, the best surgeons and re- return to play. But 
Would would there be any um, three key pieces of advice that you'd be able to to give to our audience regarding um, surgery uh, yeah. around ACL? Yeah, I, I think the, the probably the the main thing you want to consider is that this is a this is a nine to twelve month rehabilitation, and then mostly twelve months because. All, all of our research and experience shows us if you return after 12 months, your recurrence rate is significantly lower than anywhere from 6 to six to 12. So that's probably the biggest caveat to think about early. So don't rush into surgery that you're not comfortable with. Don't rush into seeing a surgeon that you don't get a good feeling from or doesn't answer your questions or doesn't give you what you want. Have a So I guess the number one point would be to get a really good team around you. Yep. So have a good physio, exercise physiologist or strength coach, orthopedic surgeon, doctor who are all on the same page with you and really resonate strongly with the way you want to approach your rehabilitation. That would be number one. So you can ask good questions to decide whether you're going to have surgery or not. You can ask good questions around your rehab. So not just go, you've told me my first six weeks is this, so I'll just blindly follow that. Well, actually, I feel like I could do more. Can I do more? Mm. Yes, great. Yeah. Let's all liaise and push on a little bit. Or yeah. actually, I'm feeling a bit sore. I haven't quite got full extension back in my knee. My knee is still a bit hot and swollen. Are you sure I should be doing yeah. this exercise? That's that's critical. So number one, get a good team that you trust, um, that you can have really comprehensive discussions around your rehab with. Number two, document that plan. Mm-hmm. So have a really nice calendar-type format of where your goals are and where these different phases sit now and be malleable enough to shift those forwards and backwards yep. depending on how you're going. So document them to keep you accountable because 12 months is a long, mm-hmm. long time to chew off. So if you've got clear aims where you know that around about this mark, this is where we should be and that if I hit these three strength goals, then I get to run rather than I just get to 12 weeks and I get to run. Yeah. So you hit these three markers, then all of a sudden from – eight to 12 weeks, there's four weeks of really solid work to, you know, pass your exams as you study to pass your exam to then go and run yep. and re- restart doing the stuff that you really, you really, really enjoy. So number two would be to document it. And number three would be to execute each phase with with high levels of diligence. So make sure your team are, are really well equipped to give you a good program, a really comprehensive program. And then when you've got that, ask your questions while you're developing it and then once it's developed and written down, then you've got to go and execute it. So whether you're by yourself, whether you're with family, friends, or with your physio or strength coach or whoever, yep. go and execute that and have a really good really good crack at dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's. Yep. And that will lead to a really successful outcome. Don't be upset if you're a little bit slower than what you've anticipated on your plan. That's not the end of the world. And then if you're flying, that's great, but don't push too far because... Sometimes around the corner there might be a little road bump, and if there is, that's okay. That's yeah. normal. Not everything goes smoothly the whole way through. And I guess that's where your team's important to tell you, set those realistic expectations for you that, hey, you need to, you should be at this phase, but because of a bit of swelling, we're going to keep you back for a little bit longer, which yeah. is okay. Yeah, exactly. And just because your best mate who's the same, you know, plays the same sport, the same position, is the same body type as you, was there at 12 weeks and you're at 16 weeks and still not there, that's okay. That's all right. That doesn't matter. Because at 12 months, you'll be both at a really high end level. He might be ready at nine at that same level, but we're probably not going to play him till 12 and you'll get there in that phase anyway. Yeah. So I think that they're the critical parts and they're the, they're the best pieces to avoid recurrence, which is the main thing. Yeah. Like if you need to go a little bit slower to avoid the recurrence, 
that's critical for me. That's it. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, Lindsay, for coming on the show today and really looking forward to the next episode where we're diving into some of the hamstring strains and why they're common with AFL players. No worries at all. Thank you. Guys, be sure to leave us a rating and review if you like the show. 